You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And our guest today is Justine Carr, a candidate for the Democratic primary for City Council District 23 in Queens. She's a Sikh Punjabi and was born and raised in Glen Oaks. Justine is an organizer and a CUNY alum. She has recently been endorsed by the DSA. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. The tagline for our podcast is uh, tackling the political Ouroboros from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. We're all outer boroughs people here. We're uh, excited to be here and have you on. And we're hoping to have some more um, progressive and, and DSA representation in the New York City Council. Yeah, let's make it happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things we wanted to talk about, though, as uh, the year comes to to a close, because this is going to be our final episode of 2020, is what lies ahead, both, you know, for the city and for the country. And so while we're generally happy about, you know, Biden winning and the Democrats keeping the House, and we actually don't know what's going to happen in the Senate until the special election in January, we've been thinking a lot about the interview with uh, AOC in the New York Times. So you can check it out. We'll link it in the show notes. But people kind of went crazy over this. And to me, it seemed like everything she said was was common sense about talking about the Democrats not having the right online ground game. And you have to talk about that before you can get into ideology. What do you think, Jocelyn? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think AOC is everyone's favorite opponent to tackle because she's an, a freshman congresswoman while well, now in her second term. And it's easy for us to target somebody who has really built up a national profile around her campaign. And she's young and she's a woman of color. So I think there are these important optics to consider when we think about who is the new Democratic Party's punching bag when they think about what the future of the party looks like. And what we can already see from the results of the 2020 election is that the party itself is in jeopardy. We lost a dozen House seats. Like you said, we don't know what's going to happen with the Senate uh, runoff until January. So we're hanging on to crumbs when we could have more. And I think what scares a lot of the Democratic Party is that AOC is always asking for more and pushing that boundary of what's politically possible. And so I think What was really interesting to me to learn from AOC was that she offered a substantial amount of help to the Democratic Party, whether it was fundraising, digital organizing, strategy to make sure that we can clinch the wins and not only just keep the seats that we have uh, at the the federal level, but get more of those too, because we're going to need a supermajority. And they wholly refused. And that is such a major failure on the Democratic Party strategy. And I think it says a lot of you know, that the party itself has got so much wrong about the squad itself. They undermined what their success could look like when they ran for re-election, thought that, well, look at these four seats, they might be in jeopardy, can they clinch a win again? And they absolutely did. And they expanded the electorate even more. So I think that it's it's easy for them to, to target these women of color in particular, but also just that, you know, we shouldn't be doubting a woman who took down a major party boss at the federal level too in her 2018 election. So she is absolutely invested in doing deep organizing too, and that's clearly helped out her constituency. She just launched this homework helpers campaign uh, to help uh, you know, connect local tutors, local organizers to support families who are in need and uh, you know, struggling to keep their kids in school and families who are struggling to work at the same time. She's got the strategy, but it's because she's an organizer. She comes to politics as somebody who knows how to do this kind of deep organizing, consensus building, and relational organizing. And for the Democratic Party to refuse such good strategy, I think, says a lot about what, where their commitments actually lie. 
what is the definition of, of deep organizing and what is deep canvassing? Because that's something she referred to in the interview. Yeah, I think this is really important because for organizers, we know that expanding the electorate, getting people involved in, in uh, local elections has to go beyond the ballot. So it's about bringing people into a political process, especially for people who have been disenfranchised by the system or haven't really been brought into it. We know that the political establishment, you really only hear from your electeds a few weeks in, when you're in GOTV mode, a few weeks before the primary election, where you get a set of three or four like booklet style mailers and nobody's knocking on your door and no one's doing direct voter contact. And so this is the, the goal of deep organizing, right? To challenge that narrative of what electoral outreach can look like to a constituency. And so it's directly trying to tackle low voter turnout by bringing people in early on. And so this is the kind of field strategy that's really important to a lot of grassroots campaigns that often don't have county support or party support because by virtue of the values and the policies they're trying to champion, but also because they're trying to unseat these incumbents. And you do that by doing political education, doing issue-based canvases where you talk to people about, hey, you know, we're really at a precipice of our environment where climate change might not be able to secure a certain future for our youth. And in the next 10 years, we could see in immense climate disasters. So what can we do on that issue? Like, I mean, not in far off places, like in yeah. our city. Exactly. It's right here at home. And so I think you, you you connect these issues back to the people who actually live here to make it seem that the political process isn't so far away as we think it is. And I think that's how you win people over. You don't do it by asking for a donation and sending them a mailer. You do it by talking to what about what matters to them. You know, it's one thing to talk about this media narrative that's been started about like Nancy Pelosi versus AOC. And while I think there is conflict there, but I think the way the media covers it isn't helpful. But here in New York- The media loves a cat fight. Exactly, (laughs) yes. It is is done in a sexist way, yes, yes. But here in New York, for people who don't know, the chairman of the New York State Democratic Party is a man named Jay Jacobs. And I know him because he was the chairman of the Nassau County Democratic Party when Mm -hmm. I was a baby volunteer knocking doors on the Long Island. And uh, if you follow me on Twitter, I've been talking about something I've been calling the Jay Jacobs shut the fuck up challenge because, you know, he, he came out in the post and he just said, like, he started like just trash talking AOC and he, you know, she's asking for too much. And he, he went on uh, an interview and, you know, he's trying to speak out of both sides of his mouth because on one hand, you know, there's a veto proof majority by the Democrats in the in this legislature, but he's still trying to blame the left far more than I've ever heard Nancy Pelosi blame the left. And people don't know who Jay Jacobs is. And they think that because he's the chairman of the state Democratic Party, that he must be good at what he does. And I've never seen that. I've seen him make terrible decisions and sabotage candidates and pit people against each other. So that I think is a harder thing for me to accept that like here in New York, this is the person that's supposed to be running things. It's not acceptable, and it's also just bad for people and bad for politics. Absolutely. I mean, he's calling the policies that are actually going to change the material conditions of the working class destructive. He thinks we don't have a tax base. He thinks that we have no strategy and no uh, consideration for what people want. But personally, I don't think he's talking to the people who actually want change. He's got his own agenda, and he has his own base of the actual party itself. So, of course, he's going to feel some ruffled feathers by someone trying to challenge the system because it's not just trying to flip a few votes and flip a few seats. It's trying to uh, flip the entire fabric of what a democracy looks like at the city and state level, too. It's all of that. I think that's kind of a, a nice way to to lead in a little bit into what are some of your campaign issues that you feel might highlight 
more systemic change rather than like particular single kind of legislative like initiatives. Yeah. So I think one of the most important ones that we're coming up against in 2021 is going to be, and, and it's written into the role of a city council member, one of the most important things is how we legislate around land use and rezonings and development. We know that, you know, Revney, the Real Estate Board of New York has such a strong hold on uh, development across the city and across the state because they have such a heavy lobbying group that is going to be donating to electeds, going to be donating to other candidates. And it's this real estate apparatus that is going to really decide whether we can actually secure real affordable housing that isn't limited by mandatory inclusionary housing or AMI. And so for me, I think it's going to be really important that we think about guaranteeing the right to, a, to housing um, in District 23 is home to a majority of homeowners and co-op owners, but that doesn't mean that housing still isn't insecure in this district either, right? Like my parents are homeowners, but we're still struggling to pay off the mortgage and we are still left with the fallout of that 2008 financial crisis. And then for us more personally, the, the taxi medallion crisis. So a lot of these are interwoven. So you know, for us, it's going to be really important to think about getting private development that isn't invested in union labor, that isn't invested in protecting our environment out of our ULERT process, out of our land use process, securing the right to housing in a way that actually creates social housing for the working class, um, but also thinking about the state of labor and our gig economy workers too. Uh, you know, I'm the daughter of a taxi driver, I'm the daughter of a, of a grocery store worker, and we know that this pandemic has only exasperated uh, the state of affairs for our you know, essential workers, and I don't even like saying essential because these are the people who, who keep things going but aren't being treated as essential, the way we like to say in all these marketing and PR campaigns. So you know, I'm really excited to champion legislative ideas and policies that are really going to build up a coalition of multi multi-racial, multi-ethnic working class people to bring dignity back to New York City because we've really lost it. So happy to hear somebody talk like that because not a lot of people that are running for office in Queens or in New York talk like that. And it makes me really happy and it makes me really excited for the future to, to see that somebody can base a campaign on these ideas that, that I support and I think a lot of people support, I think a lot of people are looking for. I think that's why I was bringing up Jay Jacobs before because he gave an interview where he said like, these kids that are supporting the DSA, they don't know the consequences. They haven't thought it through. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I haven't thought through that you want everybody to have healthcare and housing. Like, okay. Um, and I, like, I, we do actually have all these college degrees that they forced us to get and then told us we shouldn't have. And we're like, no, actually, we know the epidemiology. It actually will cost less for people to have healthcare right. than to wait for people to need the emergency room. <laughs> Imagine that, right? All right. <laughs> but it makes me so angry. It's like, actually, who hasn't thought it through? You all, because you have all this data, you have all the evidence, you can read it, and you're not listening. Exactly. We're not pulling policies out of thin air. If you actually talk to the to the people who vote, if you actually talk to the people who are scared about these medical bills that are sitting on their table that they can't pay, that are struggling to, you know, even feed their families and don't know when their next meal is going to be, then you would know that we actually have a platform that's based in lived experience and not just this imaginary idea of what the future of a party is supposed to look like. They're putting party interests over the interests of the working people. The healthcare one, I just, I could go on for days. It's like, have you yeah. ever gotten an explanation of benefits, like ever, for any <laughs> doctor's visit, ever? Because if you think that makes more sense than the single-payer option, I don't know what to say. <laughs> it sounds like the donors are talking, and you're afraid of not having your pockets lined with their money anymore. That's what it comes down to. Hmm. <laughs> 
just to put it, I think, into context for Karen, like when I was thinking about like this seat, I was talking to a friend of mine about, you know, what I, what I hope for. And I said, someone really needs to run on housing justice. And in our previous episode, we interviewed Diane Morales. And I said that I see a lot of the issues that we have in our district as related. Like I see like the co-op board tax loophole related to homelessness related to rent control. Like I see all of these things as interrelated um, in, in the housing crisis and in, you know, an affordability crisis for people to, to live here. And, you know, I said this to a friend of mine and they said something like, yeah, but it's hard to run for city council if you don't have real estate backing you. And that's such a pessimistic <laughs> way to look at it, right? Like don't do what's right because you won't get the money. Then if you don't get the money, then you can't win. And if you don't win, you can't do what's right. So, and, and that's why I think right. the campaign is so refreshing to me is that you're just rejecting that paradigm outright. And I love that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, I think that's essentially the problem with public elections, right? That we are strapped by these incredibly powerful, incredibly lucrative industries. And so if you are already making the connection that like, well, you can't win without real estate, then you're already pointing to a fundamental problem, right? We shouldn't have to be relying on these lobbyists, these corporatists, right? Who don't care whether someone is going to be out on the street. And so it's becoming increasingly clear that the average person can't afford the average rent in their neighborhood, can't afford to lose their home because they don't have anywhere else to go. We don't even have any NYCHA developments in this district, but what I'm hearing from union representatives, even um, as we go through these endorsement processes, as we're trying to meet other folks who are organizing laborers in, this, in our city, people who are building, uh, who are doing the repairs, um, doing kind of the trades work within NYCHA developments, some of them can't even afford to live in those developments themselves, right? And those developments are also severely underfunded and are being sold out to the real estate development with our RAD program. And that is, already says a lot about who we're willing to displace for the sake of a shell company or an LLC making another few million dollars. And that already is just so encompassing of just how much this private versus public infrastructure has just been in a continuous battle in New York City. So of course we're rejecting real estate money. And it also just kind of speaks so much to the irresponsibility of, like, if you're going to, like, rip me off, at least don't do, like, it's like a pump and dump scheme, mm -hmm. like, with the LLCs, you know, exactly. the, these buildings are going to crumble in seven years, you know, as soon as the liability comes out. Exactly. And if it's exactly. being sold as condos, like who's going to foot the bill? The person who lives there. And it, these condos are a million dollars. Like it's not like, you know, the working people are even going to be the ones footing the bill. It's it, it's wealthy voters. Right. And then they have the audacity to ask us, well, how are you going to pay for that? <laughs> well, we tax you. That's how we do it. <laughs> but we don't want to fund anything anymore. I mean, I am a CUNY grad student and mm. I teach at CUNY. And I'm like, oh, so yeah. thrilled to be like, I get to be like, I am K through PhD public school. But anyway, love it. love it. Like New York City public schools. So anyway, um, but I remember like my, the reason why I am like doing grad school is because my parents were able to do undergrad at CUNY mm -hmm. for free while they mm -hmm. were able to pay their very cheap rent. <laughs> with the money that they got working minimum wage jobs. Remember and when CUNY was free? <laughs> CUNY used to be free for everybody. Yeah. You're saying the seventies were good actually? 
<laughs> certain things about them really lent themselves to a lot of social mobility for the people who stayed, actually. So I think the 70s actually were not so bad for the people who stayed stuck around and couldn't afford the white flight. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But now we have these 118 billionaires across New York State that would generate more than enough revenue to fund the programs and actually reject austerity as to make sure that that's not the norm. We don't have to sell, settle for austerity. We don't have to settle for, you know, I remember, you know, you know, I'm a fellow CUNY grad too. I went to Hunter College. I remember I went to college for five years. So I didn't, you know, I was short some money for TAP because the TAP program only covers you for eight semesters, which is another like awful loophole. <laughs> but I remember having to start up a GoFundMe because I couldn't afford the extra $300. And for some people, that's like chump change, right? They tell us even in these, um, you know, candidate trainings, when you're learning about the campaign finance board rules and regulations that the maximum contribution a candidate can make to themselves is $3,000. I've never had, <laughs> I never had $3,000 in my bank account. I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> I've never seen that many digits. So it's just, exorbitant wealth at every corner and you know i'm sure for you for both of you it's it's exhausting at every at every corner yeah my mom says i think nassau community college was 300 dollars when she went per semester yeah. or something like that so yeah I love nassau was great to me really great to me yeah um so, still is a good school but uh i wanted to ask you about your dsa endorsement and what does that mean for you and for your campaign i'm really excited we've got a whole slate of six uh, city council candidates across the boroughs. And I'm really excited because, you know, it, it's been really powerful to even just be involved with the Queens DSA chapter too. We've been doing incredible mutual aid work uh, to service uh, low-income families who don't know where they're going to get their next meal and doing canvases for public power too, where we're letting people know that, okay, how can we take back, you know, public ownership of our utilities? How are we thinking about climate change uh, with eco-socialist working group too, as having more climate disasters and what that means for especially our district where we have plenty of green spaces and open parks that aren't being maintained and might be under further ecological destruction. And so I think DSA does an incredible job of doing this kind of, and kind of getting back to what we we're talking about with deep organizing, right? These issue-based campaigns, this incredible group of volunteers who are committed to building a better future for us that's going to be, that should happen much sooner than later. And so being with a DSA slate of candidates says that we are more committed to the future of the many rather than the private and wealthy few. And across the slate, I think we've got something about just the slate itself says a lot about solidarity as a practice, that we are committing to the same goals. We're not going to be lonely in our fights. We're not going to feel defeated because we are, our policy agendas aren't popular. We know exactly what we want and we're going to fight for it the same way because we come from organizing backgrounds. We do political education, we do education equity work, we do tenant rights justice work. And so all of that says so much about how our slate is going to work together to secure and make sure that we get that socialist caucus in New York City Council and it's going to happen whether, whether the establishment likes it or not. Well, in New York it might be, in New York City in particular, it might be possible just considering the number of young folks exactly. that we have. Yeah, I mean, thank you for that explanation. Um, I think that there's probably a few people listening to this who don't know what the DSA is, who they've only mm -hmm. heard the big scary things about it. And I think it's really important to just communicate like what's going on and what that actually means. So I'm, I'm yeah. really happy to hear that explanation. And I think, I think solidarity is important. And I think, you know, I was going to make a joke about before about like, 
you know, I'm about to turn 38. Like, am I too old to be like, okay, boomer. But like, the thing is, like, there's a lot of boomers who have those same values as the DSA, who are building these unions, who are on these strike lines, who are doing these things. And I think it's really great to, you know, just bring these values back into politics and back into democratic politics in a way that they haven't been when we went through, you know, the Bloomberg years and making New York a playground for the rich and stuff like that. And you start talking about making things more affordable and more equitable for everyone. I think that's going to really resonate. People love to say that, you know, Bloomberg year one to like year 2020 is very different, but you know, uh, I think it's a little bit bipartisan. I remember there was um, an action at the at the Fresh Meadows uh, Hotel at the Wyndham Garden where there were formerly incarcerated people from Rikers being held. And there was an uproar of homeowners who were having all these kind of fear-mongering messaging around, well, will somebody think of the children, right? What about safety? These are predators. These, these are criminals. Totally speculating, even though no one knows. We, we can't just even disclose that information of what their backgrounds are. And we were up against, uh, on our side, of just saying, well, housing is a human right. In a COVID pandemic, if they weren't being housed at this hotel, they wouldn't, they would be homeless. They would have nowhere else to go. And, you know, I think towards the end of the protest, it ended up becoming both sides hating on de Blasio. So, you know, maybe that is our bipartisan issue. <laughs> maybe that is where we meet in the middle. We're on a good streak. Whoever we have on in January has to also bad mouth de Blasio with us. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be hard to find somebody willing to do that on the record. Nah. <laughs> also, like, wait, who? <laughs> I don't no. know. I haven't seen him. Oh, right. no, but he goes on TV, right? Does he or is that just Cuomo? Cuomo just, like, goes on TV and makes declarations about his opinion. <laughs> I mean, he had doing press conferences for a while during the pandemic. All like right. one of them That's would go right. later, and the other men would jump in. Lead. I think we're walking back our stance about whether or not men should be allowed to run for office if we're just saying no male mayors. Are we? And not all male mayors, guys. Come on. No, all of them. Definitely all of them. One thing I wanted to ask about was the uh, the mutual aid that the DSA has been doing in Queens. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so the DSA Mutual Aid Project is actually now called the Queen's Care Collective. And so their food pantries are housed out in, parts of it are in Astoria, sometimes it's in Long Island City. So out in Western Queens, where people think is the only place where socialists can run and win, right? But clearly that's not true. (laughs) It's an incredible operation. You drive up to the warehouse and it's all of these volunteers who are just ready to load load up your trunk with 10 to to like 15 bags of groceries that just go out to families across Queens. And so um, they've got an incredible fundraising mechanism where they're able to continue feeding families right throughout the pandemic. I mean, I, I didn't start volunteering until maybe June or July, but it was it's a really tightly run operation by people who really deeply care about food insecurity and food sovereignty across Queens. And if there's anything we know about what's happened with the pandemic and even before that too, right? The lines always wrap around the block at so many of these food pantries, like at La Dronada, around like District 20, around like Flushing, Jackson Heights, um, Elmhurst area, and even in Astoria and Long Island City, you see people pull up with push carts every day trying to come up to this church so that they can try to feed their families. And um, you know, one of the most unfortunate things that I uh, I saw, we had started with a few bags of you know produce, some non-perishable goods, and then a gallon of milk or two. But at some point, we weren't able to continue giving people gallons of milk, and that was because of the USDA shortage with milk and produce. And so. 
it was so heartbreaking to visit the same families I see every single weekend because it is the same nine to 10 families every single weekend. And after some time, she would ask me, uh, one of the women that I delivered to, she would say, oh, there's no milk again this week. Do you know when we'll get it again? I, I was heartbroken. I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know when we're going to have milk again. And, you know, we know that the prices of that have been increasing. You'll see the labels in the supermarket saying that there's shortages of certain products. And I think that's just indicative of just how much the state, right, whether it's New York state or a federal government just doesn't have a commitment to feeding the people. And that's one of the most basic, basic things. But, you know, the DSA has really been building out this incredible operation to try to combat that. And there's so much love and care that goes into it too. They, we did like a Halloween specific uh, delivery to or giving candy to some of the kids as well. So it's, it really comes from a place of deep care and commitment to, you know, making sure that families have what they need. I'm really glad that you're doing that work. And it's, it's really wonderful. And I would just like to say that it's, it goes on even in neighborhoods where you wouldn't think, like, I know that there's um, someone turned the, like, uh, the little book library, like where you, you put in a book and you, t- you take it out in by the Douglas and train station into mm-hmm. like a food pantry for people who leave canned goods. And yeah. people have been taking it. People, people are really in need all over the city. So yeah. I think that that's something that, you know, when elected to, if you, to bring to the city council an important perspective on someone who's, who's done that work on the ground and, and really been there with, with people who need it. Yeah, I mean, there's awesome organizers in Queens Village who are trying to do a community fridge out there too. And I think that's been such a joy to see where people are painting the fridge to customize it, working with local businesses. I mean, really we shouldn't have to do that, right? We should be able to actually feed people without needing to put together a fridge so people can actually get what they need. But I think to the to, to your point, right, people will, you know, won't know what they need until the resource is available, right? So I think that's the other component of like pushing political boundaries to be like, well, you know, I don't think we really need that. Well, if you put it in place, then people will actually use it. It's the same argument around bus lanes and bikeways too, right? People are like, well, that's just going to create more street congestion. I don't think we really need that. But everyone knows once you put down that paint on the street, people love bike lanes. People love getting around their community in a faster and safer and more environment, environmentally friendly way. But, you know, they're, they're not talking to the people. I think that's the <laughs> that's the common thread also, here. Also, since the pandemic, I know that there was just a study that came out that the subways are safe. But if every single person who was concerned about taking the subway bought a car, that would really make congestion worse than if they yeah. bought a bike where, that they could safely ride to work. Exactly. I <laughs> I think like, I mean, we don't even have bike shares or bike co-ops out here in East Queens. We don't have city bike. Um, you don't have city bikes? No. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Also, we, so we have the community fridges in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. So sorry that we're taking all your resources, but it shouldn't be a scarcity model. It must no. be nice. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going to ask about the the Queens Greenway project. I think it's called. Yeah. Can you talk yeah. about that? Yeah, the Queens Greenway is an awesome. We just had a, a really cool visioning session with the Department of Transportation and local transit activists who are trying to. Uh, build out better connections across this greenway, right? That is going to be like bike lanes, uh, protected pa- protected bike lanes, right? Not just paint, but also maybe Jersey barriers and flex rods, right? So we can actually make sure that car and bike traffic, we don't get more crashes. Um, or the parking lane, like, or the parking which lane. is really nice because then you don't get the people complaining about losing parking. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a really cool network. And, and I love like nerding out about like urban planning when it comes to like parks and streets, because it'll connect 
Casino Park. It'll connect us to the Joe Michaels Mile all the way on the east side and make sure that we're repairing the kind of um, weird connections in between where um, biking gets to be really dangerous because you're crossing a really large intersection. Or maybe we're expanding, some of the plans are to um, expand out parts of the Greenway so that these bike lanes are connected to Queensborough Community College and Queens College. So you're incentivizing youth to use their bikes and actually have bike racks set up so that you know the bikes aren't getting taken away either. So it's like an amalgamation of like city planning so that we get you know protection of our ecological systems, right? We're preserving our parks. We're you know improving signage in the area so that people actually know what the biking pathways and trails actually look like. Um, but also just building out good green infrastructure. And so I think you know when people talk about a green new deal, some of that sounds very vague. It's like, oh, that's just the AOC and Ed Markey thing. You know, no one really, <laughs> no one really talks about it much deeper. But this is what it is. It's about uh, environmental stewardship and, and building out a kind of street system that isn't reliant on cars all the time. Because not only are they congesting our streets, but they contribute to air pollution too. So it's a, it's an alternative for us to think about how we get around our, our neighborhoods in East Queens. And connect us because we're not connected. As a as a Brooklynite who likes to do long rides on my my personal bicycle yeah. that I'm just hoarding in addition to my bike share share, but um, <laughs> I definitely know that bridging those gaps would make biking in Queens a lot easier, which would you know bring my money into Queens right. <laughs> because I will get hungry. <laughs> After riding all that way, although you might have to deal with my like stinky sweatiness in your food establishments <laughs> when we get to have food establishments again. <laughs> I was just going to say, I like how you connected that back to the, the Green New Deal, because I think it's important to show like how it materially has good things in it for people and for communities. Like, you know, some people joke about it and some people seriously have conspiracy theories about Agenda 21. And I'm like, you know, city bikes are Agenda 21. <laughs> like the UN was like, hey, big cities, why don't you have bike share? And then a few months later, like you started to see like city bike and stuff like that. So yeah, when you, when you can really break it down to something like that, it, it's helpful. Right. And you know, that that's woven into our community boards too, because they have such a important role in our land use and development process and how we approve what the next rezonings are going to look like, whether we get another senior housing facility in the district, whether we're able to build out something that can actually service affordable housing in the district too. And, and part of those are also environmental impact studies. And so, you know, I, I know community boards are really hard for people to get involved in because, you know, you get people who have been on those boards longer than I've probably been alive, but, you know, it's important to, to change the, the structure and the nature of what our community boards do and, and know that our development is also inextricably tied to ecological protection and climate change, too. I also want to talk, because you're talking a lot about transportation, so I have some familiarity with the problem of kind of commuting to Queens College, at least. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a nightmare. And there's nothing that's possible to make commuting from Brooklyn to Queens College anywhere shorter than an hour and a half. There's just no way. You know, if I go through Manhattan, it's an hour and a half. If I take the Long Island Railroad to the Q44, it's an hour and a half. Like, there's just no way. There's just no way to not make it an hour and a half. There's just no way to make it any shorter ever. And so I, I don't live there, but I do know that public transportation is a huge issue in huge parts of deep queens yeah yeah absolutely and and you know all, all the solidarity I, I know what it's like to take a 
Q46 bus all the way down to the nearest train stop. It's another hour ride. You got to plan an additional 20 minutes in case of delays or if you get what we call bus bunching where three buses, in-service buses will pass you at the same time before you can cross the street to get to your stop. And then the next bus doesn't come for 20 minutes and it's a not in-service bus. <laughs> so our, our bus system needs such an overhaul too. And I think that you know, for a district in particular, it, it's a transit desert. We don't have reliable bus service. We don't have any subway stations in our district either. And the bus system itself is so inefficient. I, mean, you know, I remember it used to take about 25 to 30 minutes to get from Glen Oaks to Kew Gardens that ENF train stop, now it's about 40 minutes, right? And in rush hour traffic, it, it's, it's oftentimes driving and taking the bus are exactly the same amount of time. And that's not how public, it, <laughs> public transit is supposed to work. And so I think it's gonna take really careful city planning to get us designated busways so we can optimize that service. It makes so much more sense to optimize bus lanes so that buses that actually carry a significantly more dense population of people to where they need to get to, whether that's work or school or where they need to go get groceries. That's how we build out infrastructure so that, you know, we're not waiting for a bus indefinitely. You get more frequent service, you get more uh, affordable service too, and service that's actually accessible to people who um, are disabled, people who are seniors as well. We have a really high senior citizen population in the district who might be living alone and don't have a car, don't have a bike and rely on buses to get around. So you hit a lot of targets just with good bus infrastructure. So that you know you can actually get to work on time without groveling, waiting for when your next bus is gonna come. And I feel like my face—it sounds like oh, you you stand there and wait a little longer, but it's more than that because it's year-round. Yeah. It's the middle of February. It's when it snows. You didn't know it was gonna snow in the morning because you didn't check the weather, and so you're wearing like running sneakers that are not waterproof <laughs> and all of a sudden like you cannot feel your feet you know <laughs> and they're wet so that you know when you get home it's going to take forever for them to warm up and then you get on a bus that's so crowded you can't move your arms you know <laughs> it's really a huge problem mm. for like it's an ada problem yeah. you know absolutely you're giving me war flashbacks right now <laughs> it's the worst <laughs> No joke, yeah, I was, no joke, I was I kind think. of um, hopeful to hear someone say it could be different. That was really yeah. good for me, <laughs> you know, because I've only taken that bus a couple of times when I had jury duty and stuff. And I was like, maybe I maybe I should take this bus the next time I want to go to Kew Gardens and like go shopping or whatever. And then I'm like, mm, maybe not. <laughs> I'll just drive, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, just thinking it could be different. That's that's really what we need. You know, bikes, buses and Actually, tree pruning are some of the number one, are some of the top constituent services acts in this district alone. So to ignore that, I think you're really ignoring like thousands of people and what they need. So we can, we can do it differently. We absolutely can. No, but seriously, when you're waiting for the bus, it doesn't sound <laughs> weird for somebody to suggest that it could be better because it could not possibly be worse. <laughs> <laughs> this is now the public transit podcast. I, this <laughs> is fine. Karen gripes about the bus in Queens. <laughs> Air your is, there, is there anything you want to add before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, what, what's really going to be interesting about this District 23 race is that um, and across city councils that we're going to have a really new system of voting, too, with ranked choice voting happening in 2021. 
Uh, we're excited about hopefully more voter turnout, only maybe six to 7,000 people vote in this district for primary elections, and hopefully we'll get more turnout with a ranked choice voting system that's actually going to further democratize our elections, but also with uh, a new mayor on the ballot too. So we're really excited to be building out this multiracial, multiethnic coalition of people who speak multiple languages, and that's going to be incredibly more important in uh, one of the most, if not the most di diverse district in all of um, in all of the city. We've got the third largest Asian uh, immigrant population, the largest number of Hindi speakers, and we have a 37% Asian majority in this district too. So we're really excited to be putting all of these um, communities in conversation with each other, building up the support from the grassroots. And you know, that's the only way you build a movement and that's how we do it as organizers. So we're really excited to look forward to, to, to the city council race. Uh, you can check us out at justlinecar.nyc and you can register uh, with us as a volunteer. You can sign up to be part of our team um, or you can donate with our matching funds program too. Every donation from a New York City resident will be matched eight times. So your $10 donation uh, can be as high as $90 if you're, if you're from the city too. So we love publicly funded elections. <laughs> Right. So any outer boroughs or, you know, even if you're in the city, <laughs> any of our <laughs> listeners, you can donate. Yes. Give Justine $10. <laughs> give Justine $10 2020. $20 in 2020. Ooh, I like that better. Nice. 21 in 2021. Yes. Thanks y'all so much. This is awesome. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.